Hey guys, my name is Drew, for those of you who don't know me, and uh, I was having a conversation one time with a group of people, and for some reason I admitted in that conversation that I enjoy taking baths, <laughs> which is not easy to admit, <clears throat> and five or ten seconds passed until the next person talked, which seemed like an eternity to me because I'm wondering what are these people thinking about me right now, and then my friend Brian Dermody, who formerly was a strength and conditioning coach for the New York Jets and could um, deadlift 800 pounds, admitted that he also enjoyed taking baths. And all of a sudden, I felt completely normal. And I was thinking about that story as I was prepping this message because I think in some ways I want that conversation to be the culture of our church. Okay? This is what I mean by that. I want us all to be able to come here and to own up, to be honest, to be real about not just superficial things in our lives like our preferences, but about who we really are, our sin. And the reason that we would be able to do that is because we believe that Jesus is real and we believe that something called gospel renewal is possible. And what I mean by that is deep inner change. All of us want to change. We don't like the current version of ourselves, but as Christians, we believe that this renewal that everyone out there is looking for is possible in Jesus. And so, Again, we're studying the book of Ephesians, and we're going to see three essentials of this renewal that takes place in Jesus. The first essential step we need to take is to turn from the lie. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, we're starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, so the basic exhortation here is to not walk as the Gentiles do. In our current cultural vernacular, that would be to say, don't be like the surrounding culture. Don't give in to the temptations that everybody else is giving into. But what's interesting is that I think most of the time when we think of like a Christian theory of change, what we think that Paul is going to say next is, you know that that's wrong, just stop it. Just quit. Like, you know that it's wrong to sin, just stop sinning. You know that it's not going to make you happy. But that's not what Paul does here. He dives into the reason that we find it so difficult to change. And he basically goes through this, these stages. He says, first of all, you have a hard heart. You harden your heart to the truth of God's word. Second of all, you become stubborn in that belief. And you're just like, I, I'm not moving from this. I'm staying right where I'm at. Then, because you're hardened against God's truth, 
you believe the lies of the culture. You latch on to some lie and you say, instead of God's truth, I'm going to exchange it for this truth because it's more appealing to me in some way. And then Paul says, as a result of all that, you get in this cycle of greed, he calls it, for impurity. In other words, you keep going back to the same thing over and over and over again, and even though it doesn't satisfy you and you need more of it next time, you keep going back to it anyway. The, the result of all of this, he says, the worst part of this, is there is a basic feeling of estrangement or alienation from God. Because the whole story of the Bible teaches us that what we were made for was to be satisfied in God alone. So the saddest thing is not your addiction. The saddest thing is that your addiction keeps you from relationship with God. Okay, so let's just do a little case study so that I can illustrate this to you all. Although I'm sure all of us have familiarity with this pattern in our own life. So let's take the example of sex. Okay, so the Bible says, first of all, that sex isn't meant to be all satisfying. God is meant to be all satisfying. In fact, sex is meant to be a reflection of the intimacy that we can have in relationship with God. So the ultimate in life is intimacy with God, and sex is just a dim reflection of that. That's the truth about it. And so sex is meant to stay in these boundaries of one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant called marriage. So here's what we tend to do with that teaching from the Bible. We say, no, that can't possibly be true. And so we harden our heart against the teaching. You might ask the question, why would we harden our heart against the teaching of the Bible? And I think that what I found in myself is that I tend to harden my heart in the areas of my own brokenness. So the teaching of the Bible conflicts with me, my inner desires. Okay, so in the area of sex, you might look at that teaching from the Bible and you might harden your heart because it's it's so exposing and convicting, and you realize that your own desires don't match up with the teaching of God's Word. So that could come in two different forms, right? Like the idea of monogamous, lifelong commitment to one person is repulsive to you. You're like, no, I want to have many sexual partners, and I have a desire for many sexual partners, and I don't believe that one sexual partner for life could satisfy me. Or, you have a desire, a sexual desire, for somebody of your same sex. And you've always felt that sexual desire, as long as you can remember or when you went through puberty. And that doesn't match up with the teaching of the Bible. And so, instead of believing the truth of God's word, you immediately harden your heart in stubbornness. And then what happens is, you exchange the truth of God for a lie. You do replacement in your own soul. And from what I can see, there's two different ways that people are replacing God's truth with a lie. One, I'm going to call the sexual prosperity gospel. This is sort of the Christian version. Okay? And the sexual prosperity gospel says, 
if you'll just wait, like put your purity ring on and wait until you get married, then you will have an all-satisfying sexual experience and you'll never look back. And what I find is then people get married and they realize the truth of God's Word that sex was never meant to be all-satisfying or to fulfill them. So there's this sexual prosperity gospel. If I get married and I have sex, then I will be completely fulfilled. So I'll just wait to be married, and then I'll put all this weight and pressure on my sexual partner in marriage to satisfy me so I can find sexual fulfillment. And then, of course, there is a secular version of the lie as well. And the secular version goes like this. If I look inside myself and express what I desire sexually, then I'll be satisfied. So what I feel is what is real, and if I feel it and then I live it out, either in a fantasy world or in real-life experience, then I'll be satisfied. Okay, so we've got this hardened heart that's rejected or, or dug in its heels against the truth of God's Word, and then replace that truth with a lie. And then what happens is your heart becomes callous to God. What used to be unthinkable for you in terms of the images that you look at or the videos that you watch or the things that you do sexually becomes habituated either in your mind or in your practice. You, Paul says, become greedy for every kind of impurity. But here's where the lie really sours in our heart. The more that we go after the lie, the less satisfying it becomes. And yet, simultaneously, the more addicting it is. So we run back again and again to that sexual partner or to that sexual experience or to objectifying that person. Maybe it's even your spouse and expecting them to bring you this sexual fulfillment. And so you're using other people around you for sexual fulfillment and it's not satisfying you and it's objectifying them and you can see that it's hurting them and you don't want to hurt them, but you can't give up the addiction and the lie keeps going on and on and on and on and on. But here's what I realized as I was looking at this. The basic lie that we believe, no matter if it's applied to sex or it's applied to money or it's applied to power or it's applied to material possessions or whatever it is, the basic lie is always the same. God is not enough. His way is not good. So here's what we're like, okay? Because we all know that that's true. But here's what we're like. We're like somebody who's standing in front of a table that's right at waist height. And there are two glasses of water on the table. 
There's a person standing on the other side of the table that is incredibly trustworthy. One of the glasses of water has obviously been purified seven times over. It's like a perfectly clean glass of water. The other glass is filled with swamp water. And we're standing at the table, and we're trying to decide which glass of water to drink. And the person whom we trust is saying to us, drink the clean water. And we know that the clean water is going to be satisfying to us. But we're sitting there going, but I don't want to drink the clean water. I wonder if that water just looks murky and like it has slugs in it. Or if I will be the first person in history to be satisfied by water that looks like that. And so here's what we do. In our hardness of heart, we grab the slime-filled water and we chug it down. And then we don't want to admit the stupid decision that we've made, and so we've got like gross algae and nastiness in our mouths, and we're trying to act like, we're trying to keep a smile on our face like that was a good decision, because we simultaneously feel so dumb, and we know that we have to run to the bathroom because we need to barf. And God is saying to us this morning, don't be so foolish. Turn away. Recognize the lies that you are believing in your life. I, I was told recently, and this was helpful for me as I thought through this, that our strongest desire may not be our deepest desire. So think about this this last week. Maybe your strongest desire was a sexual desire or for a material possession. But, but here's my argument. Your deepest desire this morning is for God himself. It's to be known by him and to be loved by him. C.S. Lewis famously said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. See, we're believing all of these lies, but we need to come to church and we need to read the Bible so that we can wake up to the lie again, so that we can realize why we're so deeply unsatisfied. And so that's the first step. We turn from the life. We wake up to it and we're like, oh, that's what I've been doing. Secondly, you remember your identity. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, this is a strange next sentence that we might not expect. He says, okay, don't live like the Gentiles who follow this pattern of believing the lie 
Because that is not the way you learned Christ. He doesn't say that is not the way you learned to behave or that is not the way you learned morality. He says that is not the way you learned Christ, which is where we take a diversion from every other theory of change out there. And he gives sort of this clothing metaphor and tells us that we need to put off our old self and to put on our new self. So he says the old self is characterized by these lying desires. Okay, so here's what happens when for most of your life you have believed these lying desires about a myriad of different things. You start to believe that you are what you desire. And so change for you becomes impossible because you have identified in the deepest part of your being as a sexual sinner or as a liar or as a greedy person or as a gossip. You have cloaked yourself in a negative identity. And some of you have made it even more tricky because you have spun the negative identity and tried to turn it into a positive identity. And so you maybe call it by a different name, but you're walking around and you have mainly identified yourself by what you do that is displeasing to God. And this is what Paul says. That is not who you are. That may be something that you've done. That may be a bad pattern of behavior, but that is not who you are. But he doesn't leave us there. He tells us in the same breath that we should put off our old self which is characterized by these deceitful, these lying desires, and to put on our new self. Now, what does the new self look like? It is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so get this. We're all sitting here, and we were all, including me, convicted by point one. We get in these lying patterns. We identify ourselves with our brokenness. We try to turn it into our identity. God says, put that off, not so that you can be unclothed, but so that you can be further clothed. It's scary to put that off because we feel like we'll lose our entire self. And he says, but here's what you get to put on. Being made in the likeness of God, in true holiness and righteousness. Now, don't get confused here. Paul is not telling you to achieve something. He's telling you to, by faith, put something on. So there's two different theological terms for the process of sanctification. One would be called progressive sanctification. That would be the process of becoming more like Jesus throughout your life. I don't think that Paul is talking about progressive sanctification here. I think what he's talking about here is positional sanctification, 
which means it's this statement from God that you are in Christ something that you did not achieve and that you can never lose. So here's what I'm asking you to put on. I'm asking you to put on God's righteousness and holiness, which means this morning God sees you as beautiful, as amazing, as pure, as set apart, as in Christ. Your identity is not lying desires and the patterns of sinful behavior that you participated in even this last week. Your identity is that you are a holy and beloved child of God. He doesn't look at you and say, shame on you. He looks at you and says, shame off you because he placed all of the shame on Jesus. And so sometimes as Christians, we're only believing half of the great exchange. We believe that our sin was placed on Jesus. And we're like, yes, my sin is done away with. But then we go try to live for our own identity by our own performance. The great exchange says not just that our sin was placed on Jesus, but that his holiness, his perfection and moral beauty has been placed on us. Which means you're as perfect as you can possibly be in Jesus right now. And there is absolutely nothing that you can do to unearn that or undeserve that because Jesus has taken the punishment for you. And God loves you. That's your identity. It is as secure as anything in the universe. So here's what I think we're like right now. A lot of us are like somebody who has gotten out of prison, but we're still wearing the prison clothes. And so we're going and we're trying to like get a job and we're trying to meet a spouse and we're trying to go through our daily routines and we're not getting anywhere in life because who is going to give anything to somebody who's wearing prison clothes? Right? And so we, we wear, we cloak ourselves in this identity as not free and imprisoned, and we walk around sort of with this shame. And what God wants to do for you is He's got this brand new set of clothes. And He's saying to you, listen, I, I want you to go to the bathroom, I want you to take off the prison clothes, and I want you to put on this new set of clothes, and I want you to take on this new identity as someone who is completely and totally and radically free. And it's in that identity that you can say no to the desires of the world. Because here's what you're looking for as you follow after the lie. Every single one of us, no matter what brand of lie that we're running after, every single one of us is looking for someone who we view as important and significant to look us in the eye and to tell us that we're okay. That's why you're working so hard at school. That's why you're working so hard to get laid. That's why you're trying so hard to get the approval of your parents. 
No matter what lie you're going after, the basic thing is always the same. We need our Father in heaven to tell us that he loves us. And the good news of the gospel is you don't have to get on the greed cycle. You don't have to go back to the same swampy water over and over again because God wants to give you the approval for free. Just accept it. He loves you. That's the good news of the gospel. And then as a result of that, we live into this new identity. And the way I would describe the next paragraph is that if you grasp this new identity, instead of living with bitterness and harshness and, and using people, you will be freed to live with tender-heartedness. Instead of having a callous heart and a hard heart and a stubborn heart, God's love will melt your heart. Listen to the beauty of the Christian life that Paul describes. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, there it is in the last line. Kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we've talked about our identity in Christ, that God does not treat us as our sins deserve, but instead, as we all sit in this room, he sees us as absolute beauties because of what Jesus has done. And so what Paul is saying is that when you take on a grace-given identity, you become a grace-giving person. Notice we're not talking about simple morality here, doing the right thing, which is usually accompanied by looking down on others, but instead we're talking about being gracious to others, giving them the benefit of the doubt, more than giving them the benefit of the doubt, giving them love and acceptance and affection in all different arenas of our life because of the love and acceptance that God has given to us. So this isn't an exhaustive list, but Paul walks through a number of different areas to think about. One of the areas he gives us to think about is our words. He says for us not to let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that we may give grace to those who hear. 
So think about your words. Do your words represent that you have been believing the lie and that you're in this greed cycle? Or do your words represent someone who is a child of the king? Who has been freed by the tender-hearted love of God? Who understands their identity in him? So you don't need to one-up other people. You don't need to boast about who you are or what you've accomplished. You don't need to lie about who you are or what you've done or pretend that you haven't done things that you have, but you are freed to be a truth-telling person because the truth is no longer scary to you because you understand that your identity is not in your performance but is in the grace of God. Okay, what about anger? Okay, anger is a reaction or a protection of what we love. So all of us are going to be angry. The only people who are never angry are the people who don't love anyone or anything. You're going to be angry if someone tries to hurt someone that you love. But Paul says, be careful because you're not as righteous as you think you are in your anger. He says it's possible to be angry, in other words, to protect what you love without sinning against another person. And we understand this because God has demonstrated it to us. So God, simultaneously in the cross, has protected us from the consequences of our own sin. He's been angry at our sin, and yet he has also lavished his love on us. I think what Paul is telling us to do is to live in such a way that we hate the sin in other people without destroying the sinner, without lashing out at them, without losing it on them. God is patient and kind, and he is inviting us into this life, not of outrage, but of gracious compassionate truth-speaking, to channel our anger toward seeking restoration, not retribution. And he talks about what we're doing in our daily lives. He gets really practical here. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Okay, again, this is so different than the pattern of the world because the world has turned work into the greed cycle. I work so that I can have more, so that I can try to satisfy myself, so that I can have more, and I work more, so that I can have more, so that I can try to satisfy myself, so that I can have more stuff, so that I can be better than other people. And, and Paul says when you get the gospel and you get out of the greed cycle, you see work differently. You see work as a way to love and serve the people around you rather than a way to fill the emptiness in yourself. It's a completely different angle on work. Some of you wonder, 
what is the purpose of my work? Or how am I supposed to work? Or what motivates my work? And I think Paul would say, what ought to motivate your work, what dignifies all work is generosity. You are not working to get your identity or to get something for yourself, but in the gospel to give of yourself to the community around you. And then finally, he summarizes the whole attitude that we have toward our relationships as kind and forgiving. And the ultimate test of whether you're living into this identity as a Christian is the condition of your heart. Are you hard-hearted, bitter, or tender-hearted? Maybe the real, the real test is, think about the person who has offended you most. What is your attitude toward them? It's possible for us to change in such a deep way that we even love our enemies. Okay, so some of you are asking the question often, um, what is God's calling on my life? This is like the question when you're in your late teens and early 20s, right? What is God's calling on my life? And I think based on this passage, what I would say is focus more on your character than on where you'll be or what you'll be doing. I think the emphasis of the New Testament is on who we are, because wherever you are, you're going to be who you are, and you can have the calling of God on your life doing very ordinary work, or you cannot have the calling of God on your life doing what looks like to be very important or godly work. So here's what I want, want to leave you with. Jesus his attitude toward you is one of tender-hearted compassion. And because of his tender-hearted compassion toward you, you can live with that sort of compassion toward the world. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you um, for this new identity that we don't have to be caught in this cycle of um, greedy, um, attempted self-fulfillment but instead we can live lives of generous self-giving because of this new identity that we have in Christ. I pray that you would um, help us uh, even as we worship to let down our guard, to, um, to admit the lies that we've believed and the ways that we've hardened our heart against you and been stubborn toward you and that you would um, fill us with the compassion that we need and that our world desperately needs. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.